0: Episode 71 The Book of Joshua. Welcome to the History of the Bible. In the last episode, we concluded the Book of Deuteronomy. With that came the death of Moses and the commissioning of Joshua to be the leader of the Israelites. This would bring us to our next book, the Book of Joshua. With the ending of Deuteronomy, Came another thing, the ending of the Pentateuch. From here on out, the books are no longer written by Moses, rather, they'll be various authors. However, because the Pentateuch ended, which is the first five books of the Bible, a new biblical timeline will begin. This is called the historical books timeline. In the English Bible, there are 12 historical books. But in the Hebrew Bible, these twelve books are divided differently. The Hebrew Bible has the first six books of the English Bible's historical books, and what they call the former prophets. And the latter half of the books they title just the writings. For our sake, we will be referring to the next twelve books as the historical books timeline. The historical books would span about a thousand years. As we move along these books, we'll begin to find more confidence in the dates that events happened because they lined up with many extra biblical records. The twelve books of the timeline are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. As mentioned, this will span about a thousand years of Israel's history, but we won't get ahead of ourselves just yet. Although the next 12 books are all going to be written by various authors, there are still common main themes that run through all of the books. Though each book will have its unique piece, it will be connected to others in these five ways. God's sovereignty over Israel and the nations, God's presence is near, God's promises present and the future, God's kingdom is both divine and human, lastly, God's covenant with its rewards and punishments. Some scholars believe that these 12 historical books never happened. Rather, they were just written much later in Israel's history Help explain why things happen the way they did. Some even go on to say that the events in these 12 books aren't even real. We'll get into the different things when they come up in our narrative of Israel's history. For now, though, just know that we are moving from the time of Moses and his writings into the historical book timeline. With that, our first book within the historical book timeline is Joshua. The book itself is named after the main character of the story, that would be Joshua, the man that Moses passed on full authority to lead the tribes of Israel into the promised land. The death of Moses has been figured to have happened in the years 1407 or 1406 BC. However, if the thought is believed that the Israelites stayed in Egypt longer, then they came out at a later period in history, around 1260 B.C. That would place the death of Moses around 1220 B.C. Whichever date is believed, the Exodus happened in the Bronze Age to the Late Bronze Age, which is between the period of 1550 B.C. and 1200 B.C. However, the start of the Bronze Age varies in different parts of the world. Extra-biblical texts from the Canaanite region have few text writings, except the Armana letters from this period. These letters were a bunch of different exchanges of correspondence between the various kingdoms and rulers in the Middle East. Believed to be, by scholars, the oldest example of international diplomacy. These letters would bring about peace, although it wasn't always real peace between the major superpowers that would arise in the Mesopotamian and Mediterranean Sea regions. The main superpowers in these areas were Egypt, Babylon, T, and Assyria. All of these empires will come into or begin to come into power during the Bronze Age. Out of the 382 letters, they are divided into different categories. The first category is that some of these letters were used for training purposes. Things were written down such as myths, epics, educational texts, lists of deities, and translated words from one language to another. The second group is international correspondence, which can be subdivided. The first part would be letters sent to independent kingdoms. These smaller kingdoms in the regions would often have an alliance with a larger kingdom, which led to the second group, the great powers. The letters that are written from one superpower to another were done in a very familiar format. It would be in the same format that Moses did his speech to the people of Israel. This group of superpowers within the region was very much like a social club, in which one kingdom had to be of a certain rank before being let into the correspondence. The last category would be correspondence to vessel states, of kingdoms that were controlled by a larger kingdom. Often, this is believed to be how the Canaanites' kingdoms operated. No, they weren't the superpower. Rather, they were often seen as kingdoms that were under the Egyptian empire. They had to follow and obey everything given to them by the empire that held dominion over them. Now, why would a kingdom choose to be under the authority of a larger empire? There could be multiple reasons. One would be that the smaller kingdoms could be protected by the larger kingdom's armies from invading kingdoms. It gave them places to trade and do business with. This would allow for the smaller kingdoms to tap into the wealth of the larger kingdom. It brought resources that often the smaller kingdom was unable to attain. The reason that the Armana letters are discussed is because it paints a picture of what diplomatic relationships looked like during the time of Moses passing on and leaving the leadership to Joshua. During the time that Joshua stepped into leadership, The Egyptian Empire did have dominion over the land of Canaan, and the kingdoms often were in submission to Egypt. Some of the Armada letters have the Canaanites addressing the Egyptians as their lord. However, in this moment of history, the Egyptian Empire was unable to help the Canaanites due to their own internal and external issues inside their kingdom. The central power of Egypt was beginning to fall. This would leave the Canaanites vulnerable. They are not able to tap into the resources of the larger kingdom. The Canaanites, for the most part, were groups and tribes of people that were warlike. At one point in history, they did have great walls and cities that were fortified and are believed to have been the descendants of the giants. However, There has been evidence that when the Israelites were coming into the Promised Land, those great cities that used to be fortified were all destroyed. When the land was under the control of the Egyptians, it was believed that the Canaanite cities were mostly towns and villages. So there is a misperception that all the cities were large city-states. At this moment in history, those large city-states were destroyed for the most part. All of that is to say, this is the setting in which the book of Joshua begins. As mentioned before, the book's namesake is the name of the main character of the story, Joshua. The author of the book isn't fully known, although there is a Jewish tradition that believes that most of the book was written by Joshua himself. It says most of the book because as one reads it, there are sections where it uses the phrase, to this day. This would suggest that the book would have been edited by someone or a group of people later on in history, before it was published. Even though there are places in the book that say that Joshua is writing, it doesn't directly claim that he was the ultimate author of it. However, because of the way the book is written, it has familiarity with other documents that would have been written around the same period in history, for example, the Armana letters. What is known, though, is the format and the way that the book was written had very similar features to that of other historical writings. The whole theme of the book of Joshua is Israelites coming into the land that was promised to them and the Lord gave them rest. Therefore, it would be written and structured in a way that reports the conquest of the land. The Egyptians and Assyrians both have documents that report their battles and conquest of different lands. The book of Joshua would be very similar to these types of records that the Egyptians and Assyrians wrote. Other scholars believe that rather than it just being written in a format of keeping battle records, it could look like a land-grant document as well. During the Late Bronze Age, from this region, a document was written from one king to another. In this document, one of the kings was giving a city, its villages, and the land around it to the other king. Because it wasn't just land that was transferred ownership, it was a gift of a city-state, and it called for a different type of land-grant. It would be a royal grant in which the receiver of the gift was given complete ownership and the right to rule over the land and its people. This is the land grant that many scholars believe Joshua is written in the likeness of, a royal land grant, where God is granting the Israelites to possess and rule the land. The Lord would conquer the land for the Israelites and then grant them the land through the covenant that was set up with Moses. Just like the royal grants of the late Bronze Age, both them and royal land grant given to the Israelites were based on the receiver of the land to remain loyal to the giver of the land, often the king who reigned over a larger kingdom. Otherwise, the giver of the land, the king, had every right to return and take the land from the one who received the land these royal land grants did have conditions, loyalty, and faithful service to the one who gave the land in the first place. Otherwise, the receiver of the land would be removed. The biggest thing that sets the book of Joshua apart from other documents that are written around the same period is the theological perspective. Yes, it does have all the details of a royal land grant, And yes, it does have the format of reporting the results of battles. But it also focuses on the faithfulness of God fulfilling His promise that was originally given to the Israelites' forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We won't get into it right now, but one thing ought to be brought up. How did the land of Canaan actually get conquered? There are many scholars and people who believe the land was conquered very swiftly, whereas other scholars and sometimes archaeology point to a slow takeover. Others have even suggested that the conquering of the land of Canaan wasn't all that much of a battle, but rather a peaceful infiltration, where the land was conquered by the Israelites coming one with the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would become the dominant culture. And people in the region. We'll explore the different perspectives of how the land of Canaan would eventually come under the rule and possession of the Israelite. The book of Joshua itself is divided into four different sections: crossing into the land, the taking of the land, dividing the land, and then serving the Lord in the land. As for the man himself, in the book is named. He was a son of Nun. Although next to nothing is known of none, we do know that he was an Ephraimite, the descendant of Joseph. As for Joshua, in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, he is mentioned 30 times. Sometimes it was by his original name, Hoshea, which means salvation, to the name we all know him as, Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. This name was given to Joshua by Moses. When the Bible first introduces Joshua, it is in the position of military commander, which he would be fighting the Amalekites who were making raids on the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt. This would be the battle where Moses held up his hands in the air, and as long as they were up, Joshua and the Israelites would begin winning the battle. When Moses' hands fell down, the Israelites started to lose. From this time forward, Joshua would be Moses' assistant, accompanying him way up Mount Sinai and assisting Moses at the tent of meeting, where Moses would meet face to face with God. Joshua would eventually be one of the twelve spies that went into the land of Canaan. However, it would only be him and Caleb who exhorted the people to trust the Lord and to take possession of the land but they would not listen to them. So they would have to wait until the whole generation of Israelites died, all except Joshua and Caleb, who were the only two men allowed to enter the promised land from the generation of people that were part of the Exodus from Egypt. When the time came for Moses to pass on the leadership to another person, the Lord gave him Joshua, as it says in Numbers 27 verses 18 and 19, Joshua is a man in whom has the spirit. So Moses would commission Joshua to be the next leader of Israel, the man that would bring them into the promised land. Often, the transition of leadership from one person to another can be riddled with civil wars, revolts, and much chaos. This isn't common only in ancient times, but also in more modern times as well. Joshua was not related to Moses at all, which is often how leadership was passed on, from the father to the son. However, in the tribal societies, often it was voted on by the chieftains to pick one man that would rule the tribes. Although Joshua was a chieftain within the tribe of Ephraim, he was not voted on by his peers. Rather, The Lord chose Joshua for Moses to pass on authority too. It's believed that Joshua would come into authority at the age of 85. This would be five years older than when Moses came into leadership before the Exodus. This would be the man that would be used by God to take possession of the promised land. We don't know who exactly wrote the book of Joshua, but we do know for sure that he is the main character of the book, even though Jewish tradition holds that it was written by Joshua for the majority of it, and then it was edited with additional information later on in history. From here though, Joshua was commissioned to lead the Israelites. He still needed to assume the role of leadership. So join us next time in Episode 72, the Assumption of Leadership, as Joshua steps into officially leading the Israelites and preparing them for crossing into the Promised Land. Until next time, remember that you are loved, special, and worthwhile. Thanks for listening to the History of the Bible. Let's get the word out by liking, rating, and following the show. This episode was produced by Nakeo Productions. To check out other shows, search for Nakeo Productions wherever you listen to podcasts.